I could never give up my life of freedom to become a man's housekeeper. Susan B. Anthony. Let us not interfere with one another's work or play. I cannot to agree to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage. Amelia Earhart. An Australian journalist wrote, Many women argued for equal partnership while also working to jettison the remaining legal aspects of marriage that made women subordinate to their husbands. Another headline says, Divorce sparked my self-discovery. Women who find out who they really are by jettisoning men. A male actor wrote, It is worth paying attention that the gender roles that are dictated to us are dictated to us and realize that we don't have to fit into these roles. We can be anyone we want to be. A common comment, a wife's place is in the kitchen. Another, my wife will have an opinion when I give it to her. What do each of these quotes have in common? Every single one of these quotes get biblical marriage and gender roles totally wrong. It is fallen humanity trying to define something that is God-given, a God-given treasure. Christian counselor and professor Jim Neuheiser writes, Jim Neuheiser, sociologists claim marriage originated for pragmatic and economic reasons. For example, in an, in an, in an agrarian society, a man would want assurance that he is the father of the children for whom he is providing. Neuheiser goes on to say, because marriage is perceived as nothing more than a societal invention, people are free to redefine the marriage contract to meet their evolving needs. So this morning, the questions I want us to look at are, are women second-rate citizens in a Christian marriage, no better than slaves? Do men get to run wild and dominate while women are abused? Can you trust your spouse? Maybe protective ground rules are in order. Why are men afraid of strong women? Should they consider stepping aside for sake of unity? Does Christian marriage evolve depending on its culture? Does God give different marital instructions depending on the time period? Can we set the guidelines of marriage according to our preference? What is marriage? But before we get too far into this, I recognize that today's scripture is probably a sensitive topic for many of you. In fact, I know it, I know it is. Many have been hurt in the past. Possibly if you've heard today's sermon title, if you saw the bulletin in the email, maybe you already looked up my main points, or maybe you looked at the passage. Submit. Do you know what I've been through? Well, first I want to acknowledge that women in our culture have been hurt by overpowering men. Even in, our, even in the SBC, men have abused their roles. Now, that's not some sort of public confession where I'm like taking on, you know, apologizing for all men, but it is um, acknowledgement that there has been wrongdoing in our culture and our denomination. When Sarah and I went to the SBC conference in Birmingham last summer, a year ago, there were actually protesters there protesting what some pastors in our convention have done, how they have abused their powers. And I lament with you over that injustice. Injustice. I want to affirm to you that 
abuse here in this church will never be tolerated as long as I am pastor. If you witness someone being physically, sexually, or any other form of abuse, I want you to call the police immediately. Let us know um, if you would so that we're not blindsided, but your first step needs to be call the police. Also, if you're currently in an abusive relationship, we want you to get safe. With everything we talk about today, I do not want you to hear that God desires for you to be abused or to stay in an abusive relationship in that household at least. Do not hear that. Please, please do not hear that. Let someone know. Get safe. Reach out to the church leaders. There is no room for abuse in this local church or any local church. As we address this topic, I want to be as sensitive as possible in light of cultural pains and because I know for a fact that people in this room have been hurt by heavy-handed men. At the same time, I want to be faithful to what God says. I want to let his word guide our thoughts. So I want to be faithful in a loving way. There's a way of kind of wielding truth, if you will, um, that is hurtful. So I'm going to try and do that as gently as possible. Maybe you're here and you carry the shame of a failed marriage. So I want to uphold the sanctity of marriage while at the same time extending the same grace to you that we have all received. As one of my mentors once said, we stand on the edge of the cliff saying, don't jump, while at the same time having a fueled up ambulance called grace at the bottom of the cliff. I promise you, if your mind goes to the extreme, throttle back a little bit, this sermon is not going to be as bad as you think it's going to be, and let's see what God has to say. Also, if you're a note taker, I would encourage you to take notes for yourself and not your spouse. If you hear what I have to say today and think only of your spouse's shortcomings, you're probably not hearing me right. Married or single, we all have a lot to learn, and I'm pretty sure everybody at some point will get dinged up because I have been getting dinged up all week studying this. As Spurgeon once said, preach the sermon to yourself first, and then if anyone else wants to listen, let them. And so I have been preaching this sermon to myself all week. But as we think about marriage, there is much that could be said about Christian marriage. Indeed, entire books have been written about Christian marriage, so we will only be skimming the surface. But as we start, I want to look at uh, Genesis, and I will just read these to you. You don't have to turn there. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, in the beginning, right? The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, and I will make for him a helper. Here we find that God sees that it's not good for a man to be alone, so he creates a helper. Well, right here we have a common objection, just a helper? I'm more than some man's helper. The fact that our mind goes there shows that we have very much been catechized by the sexual and moral revolution of the 1960s. The Hebrew word here, helper, Ebenezer. Uh, A few weeks ago, Pastor Ben mentioned that in a song, Come Thou Fount, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. Do you know that the word used here for helper is used 19 times in the Old Testament? Any guess who it refers to, 16 of them? God. 16 of the 19 times that the Old Testament refers, uses this word for helper, it refers to God. So it is not degrading to women to be created as a helper. It's God's design. Much more could be said about this, but we'll move on. In verse 22 of chapter 2, it says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she has been taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and will hold fast, or will cling to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here, quickly, we see that man and woman become one at marriage. Um, no one hates his own flesh. Remember that. We're going to talk about that later. And they hold fast to one another. Now, sometimes when a preacher talks about Hebrew or Greek, he's showing off. I try not to, but this is a word that I, I love the word for cling to. It's devak, or if you say it right, you got to you know, kind of have spit in your throat, but devak is the word. Thank you, brother. Um, and it means cling to, and it's used two other places in the Bible. One is Job and Leviathan. You know this sea creatures like a dragon or whatever? Devak is used here to describe his scales. His scales clung together so closely that air could not pass through them. This is one example. Another place is in Ruth. Naomi is sending her uh, daughters-in-laws away, telling them to go back to their family. And what does Ruth do? She clings to her, Devak, clings to Naomi and says, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Isn't that a beautiful expression of the closeness of a husband and wife in a culture where marriage is so throwaway? Devak, cling to one another. In Judaism, the hearers of this... uh, a story would have immediately went to covenant, leave and cling. A man leaves his family and clings to his wife. Here in the first marriage, we see it's one man and one woman. Total trust, total intimacy, naked and unashamed. Completely open to one another. And more than just a physical aspect, it's not just talking about the physical here. But after the fall, sin enters the world and what happens? Trust is lost. They no longer trust one another. They sew together leaves to create clothing. From there on, marriage would be difficult, and you can read more about that in Genesis chapter 3. In the book of Malachi, marriage is confirmed as a covenant. But then we get to Matthew uh, chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. Jesus says this, well, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, or cling to, his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So all the way from Genesis up to the New Testament, we see Jesus is affirming biblical marriage, and creation for that matter. So we might define biblical marriage as marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman for life. It is a covenant established for life before God and before the Christian community. Marriage is not a pragmatic man-made institution, but it is ordained by a holy and good God. So the question, the big question before us today is, How are husband and wife to relate to one another? Now, there is a spectrum here, like anything. I'll often talk about spectrums and ditches. Um, One is patriarchy. And I'm going to use characterizations here, but um, there's some truth to them. If we think of patriarchy, we think of the woman who maybe bags under her eyes, sitting quietly in the passenger seat. She's not allowed to say a whole lot. She does whatever the man wants. 
On the other end of that spectrum, we have egalitarianism, which can, again, there's a spectrum here. Um, it can be everything from like the weak man that stays home. Um, not if you stay home, you're a weak man, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and the wife works, and gender roles are fluid. They determine them for their own. The view that I would put before you is complementarianism. And it is the idea that man and woman are both equal in value, but distinct in their roles. And I believe we'll see that in today's text and in another text we're going to pull in. But we want to avoid the ditches. So if our marriage vehicle is currently, I don't know, you know what I'm talking about, avoiding the ditches. When I was in high school, I had this old F-150, and I was reaching behind the seat looking for a uh, Leonard Skinner cassette tape, I think. I was on my way to high school, and I found myself in the ditch, and what did I do? I overcorrected and ended up in another ditch and jumping somebody's driveway and messing my truck up. So we don't want to do that. So if you're currently in an egalitarian ditch, what we don't want to do is jump the road and end up in a patriarchy ditch. But if you're in a patriarchy ditch, we don't want to jump the road and end up in an egalitarian ditch. So we want to stay between the ditches. We want to avoid both extremes. We'll be in 1 Peter, and in the flow of the book, we see that Christ is an example of humility. Likewise, Christians are to be subject to every human institution, such as local government and even to the extreme of slavery. Likewise, Christians should honor God and his plan for marriage despite their cultural context. Today, we will find that God has a design and definite boundaries for Christian marriage, and those plans surpass time and the culture, and they are good. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In today's passage, we see two sides to a golden coin that is God's perfect plan for marriage. In God's perfect plan for marriage, wives voluntarily submit to their husbands, and in God's perfect plan for marriage, husbands lovingly honor their wives. Again, there's two sides to this golden coin that is God's perfect plan for marriage. In God's perfect plan for marriage, wives voluntarily submit to their husbands, and in God's perfect plan for marriage, husbands lovingly honor their wives. First, in God's perfect plan for marriage, wives voluntarily submit to their husbands. Now, from the outset, I need to say I chose that word voluntarily very intentional because it is voluntary submissions. 
submission. This is not coercion by the husband. As we go through these verses, men, I don't want you to get the idea that you can browbeat your wives into submission using the Bible. Men, ultimately, a wife's submission is to God and not to us. Their submission has nothing to do with our ego, and it has nothing to do with our stature, and it should not puff us up. And in this sermon, our term is coming, so in other words, guys, you're next. When a woman voluntarily submits to her husband, she is ultimately honoring her God by her conduct. Husbands, it is not your job to make sure she submits to you. Again, when a woman voluntarily submits to her husband, she is ultimately honoring her God by her conduct. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, in the first century, because of the rapid spread of Christianity, it was not uncommon to find a woman that was married to a guy that wasn't a Christian because the church wasn't established the way it is for us. As we see elsewhere in Scripture, the writers tell the wives that you're not to leave a non-believing spouse, but submit to them as the Bible teaches. Again, voluntarily submitting. Just as we submit to just and unjust governments, just as we submit to just and unjust masters, Christian wives should submit to both believing and non-believing husbands. However, just as in civil obedience, you cannot honor God by performing certain acts. You are ultimately submitting to your heavenly Father, so you cannot honor him by doing wrongdoing, by submitting to wrongdoing. If your husband asks you to do something immoral or illegal, you are not required to submit to such requests. So if you come home one day and your husband has a plane ticket to Mexico and you're supposed to pick up a duffel bag and drop it off somewhere, you do not submit to that. You cannot honor God by submitting to that which is opposite his will. You also cannot submit to abuse. Again, ladies, if you are being abused, call the police. We will not protect abusers here. Call the church. If you have some sort of good old boy type situation running through your mind where the pastor covers for an abuser, I want to go ahead and wipe that away now. There are women in my own family who have been hurt by this kind of stuff, and I do not tolerate it. I have no patience for those who use their power to hurt others, and especially in the local church. Look at verse 1. Husbands will be won by their wife's good conduct. Now, not taking anything away from the providence of God, Peter is saying the way to get your husband to listen to the gospel is by showing your reverence for God. This is a rhetorical question. Please don't answer. But how many of you wives have ever won your husband over through nagging? That's what he's getting at here. Peter is saying nagging him comes from a natural desire to see him believe, but in the husband-wife dynamic, it is often not going to work. If you want to get his attention, if you want to crush his defenses, Show him your devotion, show him your pure spirit, show him your virtue, show him your strength by submitting, and watch his defenses crumble. Be respectful, have pure conduct, be different from the other wives that he sees, support him. This is not a surefire promise, um, but, and I'm not a playwright, I'm not a screenwright, but I tried to write up this scenario here, so... Don't judge me too harshly, please. Uh, but imagine a scenario where the guy, three guys, are having coffee before work, right? Man one, 
Guys, my wife is nagging me to go to church again. She even said she's not going to go with me to, to the game this Saturday unless I go. I hate it when she does that. Man two. Yeah, man, I hate it when they do that. My wife does that to me too. Man three. Is your old lady after you to go to church again? Man three says, he pauses and says, actually, no. It's weird, guys. She started waking up early to read her Bible and to pray before I even get up. Weirdly, she started making me a lunch. She's never done that. And she even told me how proud she is of how hard I work for our family. She's been so kind to me lately that I thought I'd test the waters a little bit. And I brought up my, that idea I was telling you guys about for the lake rental property again. But instead of telling me how dumb it was, as she normally does, she just said she trusts me to make the right decision for our family, and she wants to support me. I don't get it. In marriage, of these three guys, which one of them do you think is most open to listening to the gospel? Yeah, number three. Despite what our culture tells us, true feminine strength is not found in rebellion, but in submission. Just as a church as a whole Honor God by submitting to government, so wives honor God by submitting to their husbands, so that they see your pure and honorable conduct. Also, as a side note to any single ladies here, missionary dating rarely works. If he's not a Christian, don't get in a relationship with him. Much heartache has been come from unequally yoking yourself to a non-believer. But you say, well, but you don't understand him. You don't know him. I know I can persuade him. Mm-hmm. You might say it worked for so-and-so, some friend of yours, but I will tell you that God has been gracious to your friend, and that is not the norm. You are likely to find yourself in a tough situation if you get into a relationship with a non-believer as a true Christian. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Do not let your... Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now the fashion and cosmetic communities are working very hard to turn this on their head. In fact, they probably already have in most of our minds. When you're at down at Safeway, and you're looking at the magazines, the supermodels that are staring out at you from the checkout line, they're the complete opposite. Seemingly gorgeous exterior with a rebellious, spunky interior. And that is what you ladies are told you should desire. So much of this has been injected into our culture that not only does the mom or grandma standing in line buying food for their family feel inadequate about herself, but when she comes to texts like today, she is naturally going to be suspicious. We've had so much of this injected into our veins, it blocks our vision from seeing the goodness that God has for marriage. Our culture says, if you don't look like she does, what are you even doing with your life? Western culture may tell you that you only have value if you look at Look like Kim Kardashian, Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer Lopez, Farrah Fawcett, Michelle Pfeiffer, and yes, I had to Google some of those um, to find out who they were. Uh, but God says, you know what I desire a woman to be like? Look at verse 4. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. 
which in God's sight is very precious. A gentle spirit, a pure heart. This is what God looks for. If you want to please God, seek these things. Seek to please God. Do you want to know what a sure sign of a person that doesn't honor God is? Is they look at this and say, that's dumb. These plans aren't good enough. It's not what my heart wants. What do I get out of this relationship? But a woman who truly desires God, honoring him, will be a joy. But are you saying, I'm not supposed to dress nicely? Like, I got to start buying ankle-length, bland, Amish dresses? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that you should spend more time on your spiritual health than your outward appearance. More time in the Bible than shopping or prepping. And guys, that goes for us too. Guys will spend hours in the gym, but less than five minutes reading their Bible. Also, I should say, you should be conscious of your modesty here. Now, again, treading carefully, I am not body shaming. I think that is the correct term. Um, or saying that men are not responsible for their actions. I am saying that a Christian woman is conscious of what she wears, both the tightness of her clothing or the lack thereof. Men, we have to honor God with our eyes and our thoughts no matter where we are. If we're walking down the beach or in your, you happen in some shady district of a big city, we honor God with our thoughts and our eyes. We do not get a pass. At the same time, ladies, you do not get to help your brothers in Christ with their sanctification. Let your adorning be eternal, a pure heart, a quiet spirit. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. For this is how holy women... For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. If you're here and you're a Christian woman, do you ever think about that? Like you are Sarah's daughter? She is your mother? That means when you read the Old Testament, it's not just those people's history, that's your history. I pray this idea encourages you to go back and look at the Old Testament with greater excitement. We are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, under the New Covenant, but it is still your history. Peter says they are your holy foremothers, and this is the way they adorn themselves. Quiet and gentle spirit, pure heart, honoring God and allowing their husbands to lead. Tom Schreiner writes, These women are called holy because they lived in a way that was pleasing to God. They were set apart for holy purposes. These women put their hope in God. This comment is instructive, for it informs us that these women did not submit to their husbands because they believed their husbands were superior to them, intellectually or spiritually. They submitted to their husbands because they were confident that God would reward all those who put their trust in him. Jewelry, clothing, beauty, all of these things will pass away a lot sooner than you think. Instead, focus on the qualities that please God, the qualities that will not pass away. As I said at the beginning of this letter, when we first started studying 1 Peter, the word obey will come up a lot. If you don't like that word, you're not going to like Peter or his book. Um, and those who are truly Sarah's children will do what's right, and they will obey God. Not only are Sarah's children obedient, but they do not fear. Look at the end of the verse. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So maybe you're here and you're prone to worry, the fear of being taken advantage of. God says, trust me, I will reward your faithful obedience, and the wicked will be punished in the end. 
Next, second point. In God's perfect plan for marriage, husbands lovingly honor their wives. Look with me at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Guys, women are not our possessions. They are not our slaves. They are not inferior to us. Our wives are our co-heirs. They are our sisters in Christ. In God's family, they are of equal value despite the different roles he gives us. Even though we are called to lead our lives, we show love and we show honor to them as our sisters in Christ. They are daughters of Sarah, and we share the same heavenly destiny. However, you are still called to lead. We reject heavy-handed leadership of patriarchy. We do not overcorrect and embrace egalitarianism. Nowhere in the Bible, but nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that men are to submit to their wives. <clears throat> in fact, you are not honoring your wife if you shy away from your God-given calling to lead due to cultural shame. In fact, you are putting her in a position to which she was not meant to be. We are to live together with our wives, understanding that we are co-heirs in the kingdom and leading our families, showing love and honor. Now, what, does it, what is Peter talking about when he says weaker? That's a good question. Nowhere in the New Testament does it ever, ever imply that women are intellectually inferior to men. I am keenly aware that my wife is far more intelligent than I am. And if I wasn't, when I took calculus in college, it showed me that. Peter could be talking about female emotional, emotional fragility. But as one commentator stated, emotional vulnerability of women often leads to their willingness to share their struggles with others, which demonstrates courage rather than weakness. What is probably in view here is physical weakness. And before you send me texts or emails this afternoon asking me if I can squat more than Natalia Kosnitsiova, um, I'm talking generally not specific. And from some of the looks I see, you are not up on your Russian female power lifters. <laughs> men are to respect their wives, and by extension, all women. Men honor women because they share the same destiny. Looking back to chapter 1, women are just as much foreordained, foreordained by the Father to salvation. They are just as much set apart by the Spirit, and they are just as much cleansed by the blood of the Lamb as every single man in this room. And God will not bless men who abuse his daughters. God will not listen to the prayers of those who abuse their authority. If you do not believe me, the next time you fail, and I do say fail, and get into an argument with your wife, and you say something unkind and make her cry, grab your Bible and try and pray. I guarantee you not only will the words not come to your mind, but if you're truly a Christian, the Spirit will certainly have you under conviction, hopefully praying for forgiveness. Men, take care in how you treat women, especially those who are God's daughters, because he will not take kindly on your abuse, and neither will this church. Men and women are of equal value, but distinct roles. We see that here in 1 Peter. Men and women can't be of different value because we are co-heirs. At the same time, we cannot be the same roles because one is to submit and one is to lead. From Genesis all the way to the New Testament, we see that men and women have different roles. Even in the curse, men and women are cursed differently. Well, some of you ask, 
Well, isn't this just a cultural issue? Well, surely there are some cultural issues here because Peter is writing to a specific culture. We are not bound to certain uh, ancient society codes, but before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, we need to realize that some things are cultural. For instance, a virtuous woman can go into public to a grocery store without that bringing shame on her family, or she doesn't need to keep, have her head covered when she goes outdoors. But most of the issues that I'm stressing here today are theological and not cultural. Specifically, Karen Jobes, who you could tell is a female um, Bible scholar, says that Christian submission in marriage is deeply theological. And the reason I bring that one up more than anything is because most of you are probably not going to have issues with men dying for their wives. Most of people in our culture are going to have issues with this whole submission thing. If we look at Galatians 3, um, just turn over to your Bibles real quick to Galatians 3 with me. Galatians chapter 3, there's a verse here that people often think unhinges the idea of female submission. And Paul, writing to the church at Galatia, says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And oftentimes people will look at that text and say, aha, there we have it, egalitarianism. Well, you have to take this verse in its context. If you look back through, what is Paul talking about? If you just look at the big heads, I don't know what your Bible has. Mine says, justified by faith, by faith or works of the law. The righteous shall live by faith, the law and the promise. The text after that is sons and heirs. What Paul is talking about here isn't anything to do with marriage. It is how we are justified. In fact, their argument is actually unhinged by the fact that they are shoring up what Peter says. We are co-heirs, and that's what Paul's talking about right here. And one of the reasons context is king is think about this for a minute. Imagine I'm gone for six weeks, and I'm writing an email to Sarah, and she tells me the upstairs sink is messed up. And I send her a long email, but there's three sentences. I say, I'm sorry, babe, I do not want you to have a messed up sink, period. I want you to try and replace the sink, period. Um, and then another sentence about like, you know, I think that bathroom could use a little work, period. And I come home six weeks later, and she's got one of these big, nice farmhouse kitchen sinks. And I'm like, what in the world? Why did you spend money on that? And she says, uh-uh-uh, look right here. Chapter three, sentence four, you said, buy a new sink. Well, yeah, but I talked about the bathroom before and after that sentence. But that's what most people try and do is they try and take their chisel and chisel out a verse to show up what they're doing, but they don't take it in context. So this is about justification, not about marriage. But other places Paul writes about this too. We're going to look here in a minute at Ephesians because we've talked about the Old Testament, the New Testament. So let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 22. Now, Ephesians, you just got to turn one book over because it's between Galatians and Philippians. And I turned too far. Good grief. All right, there we go. Chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, 
he died for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Quickly here, we see wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. The wife submits to the husband. Husbands are to love and care for their wives. Christ died for the church. Husbands die for your wives. Husbands, love your wives as your own body. No sane person hates his own body. And you two are one flesh. Cling to her. Love her with the knowledge that she is a co-heir with you, that she is your sister in Christ. Wives, respect your husbands. Now, it's not that wives don't have to love their husbands and husbands don't have to respect their wives. But here we see that Paul is writing to what comes unnatural. I think love comes more natural for women and respect comes more natural for men. Um, There's a book out there that Sarah and I read when we found out we were going to have a son or we listened to it and I started to read it. I don't know, something or other. But um, it talks about, it's called the respect effect. And it talks about the different ways of fighting that men and women have. And that when women fight, oftentimes they will up the disrespect. Um, this is talking towards a son um, to get an emotional rise out of them. But what it does is crushes the son's um, just soul because men feed more off of respect than women do, whereas women feed more off of love. So everyone in here would be a gas if if you heard me tell Hazel, especially on her birthday, um, which is today, that I will love you when you earn it. But we say that to boys all the time. I'll respect you when you earn it. But that is the gas, if you will, that God has wired men with, is respect. So Paul's writing saying, women respect your husbands, but guys love your wives. It's okay to say to a guy, I don't approve of what you did, but I still respect you. But we should not crush them with that. Ironically, I I just, as a side note, I read an article by a secular psychologist, psychiatrist, who came to the same conclusions of what Peter and Paul are talking about. Love your wives, respect your husbands, honor your wives, submit to your husbands. Have a biblical worldview of marriage. Those who try to argue that these scriptures are only cultural have to argue against a lot of scripture, which I've tried to pack in and show in this sermon. They have to argue against ancient Israel culture, Palestine culture, Greco-Roman culture, whatever culture was in Asia Minor at the time, and pretty well wipe away all texts that refer to marriage. Where then should Christians go to understand how marriage works? That's a rhetorical question, because if you say it out loud, people will pop up and have all kinds of books for you to read. However, I will argue that I believe the Bible, when it claims to be sufficient, and it should be our primary source for the church's guide. God's design for marriage is found in the scriptures, and it's far better than any book you can find at the local bookstore. 
So three takeaways from this text. First, know that God has definite guidelines for Christian marriage. We don't make the rules. We follow his guidance. Christian books are good. Bible is best. Next, understand that his plans are good. God does not leave his daughters as second-rate citizens to be dominated by men while they get their way. Likewise, God does not saddle his sons with overbearing responsibility while women get to sit back and be died for. Both sons and daughters will have their struggles, but it is for our good. Realize that God's plans are good despite what the world outside our door says. Like every other topic in 1 Peter, realize that God is sovereign. Your gender, your marriage, your trials, all of it are according to his plan. Trust him in it. Next, if you're not pursuing this biblical model of marriage, you can start today. Men, love and honor your wives. Lead your families. It won't be easy in our culture, but resolve to honor God over easy. If she blows up, don't jump into the old cycles. Ask God for strength. Keep your cool. Pray for her. Pray for strength and stay humble. Ask God to lead you as you lead. Start praying with your wife. Start praying for your wife. Start listening to your wife. Leading her does not have anything to do with just your will. You need to understand your wife because it is hard to lead someone that you don't know. Lead your family in worship. This will be real awkward as you begin. It was for me. Keep it simple. Read a verse of scripture, pray before breakfast, at dinner, before you go to bed. Maybe sing a hymn and pray um, before bed. It doesn't have to be overly complex. It doesn't have to be some sort of uh, complex Bible system that you have to write. But you should be pointing your family to Christ every day because you are the spiritual leaders of your home. Ladies, submit and encourage to your husband. Make it a point to pray for your husband as much as possible. Ask God to give him wisdom. Ask him to give your husband a heart to lead. Allow him to lead. Help him fulfill his God-given calling as a husband because the cards are stacked against him in our culture already. Pray for strength. Husband and wives, Christian marriage is not an option. It will take work. How many of you, you don't have to raise hands or anything, remember the cartoon Popeye? Yeah? Well, Popeye the sailor, right? He's got bulging forearms, eating spinach. He's taking out all these bad guys with his bare hands. Well, when I was you know, a younger guy, I had the masculine physique of his girlfriend, Olive Oil. I pretty much looked like Hazel, tall and skinny, skinny as a broom. In fact, my nickname was either Giraffe or Woody, depending on who I was hanging out with at the time. And I remember distinctly the first time I nervously went into a weight room. I did like 12 really awkward bicep curls in the corner and then went and ran five miles because I knew how to do that. But I kept going back. I kept working at it. I read books. I asked guys that were more experienced until one day I found that people were asking me for advice on how to lift. So the point is Christian marriage is the same way. Don't quit. I can't speak to how Sarah feels when she sees me stumble when trying to lead. I'd like to think it is kind of enduring you know, like girls that think they look cute when they cry, but I'm probably more pitiful and annoying than anything. But I can tell you from my perspective, when I see Sarah struggle trying to submit to me as a leader, even when she disagrees, it encourages me to be a better leader. 
and encourages me to pray harder for my wife. Now, you guys only know us from a small sliver of our life, right? Like just a few weeks. And so you might be thinking, if you struggle with this whole thing, that pastor's wife's probably just a pushover. Well, I can tell you that my wife, Sarah, will tell you she has an Irish temper and a Polish sense of humor. I don't know what the last one means still, and we've been married a while. My Sarah is the daughter of a hardworking truck driver and a teaching assistant. She put herself through a state university working at a drugstore and taking out student loans, which she paid off. For two years, she taught in a remote village of St. Mary's and in five more years in Anchorage and didn't marry me till she was almost 30. And we were only a few weeks into our courtship when I, she revealed that she owned and could shoot a 357 Magnum. <laughs> so friends, all that to say, my sweetheart does not submit to anyone anyone at a weakness. When I see her submit to my guidance, I'm reminded of the heart God has given her and the desire she has to serve. So ladies, if your husband sees you submit and he thinks, aha, here's my opportunity to get what I want, two points of application for you. First, you need to pray even harder for him, and second, you need to start sharing the gospel with him. Because a Christian husband does not use that submission as an excuse to take advantage of his wife. They are one flesh, and he seeks to encourage her. So Christian marriage is the gospel. It is a picture of what Christ has done for his bride, the church. Men, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Well, all of us died for us while we were still sinners, while we were rebels against him, Romans 5, 8. In the same way, you love and honor your wife no matter what. I don't care if she is closed fist, beating your chest, saying she hates you. You love and you honor that woman. Why? Because it's the exact same thing that Jesus did for you. He loved you when you were utterly unlovable. He died for you while you were dead in sin. Jesus did not say, clean up your act and I will die for you. He died for us while we were still sinners. And he continues to love his bride, even though she rebels and questions his goodness. So my question today for everyone here is, are you submitted to him? Are you submitted to his lordship? This is not some check the box, like it's the end of the sermon, I need to share the gospel with you. Marriage is a shadow of the gospel. If you are not submitted to Christ, whatever claim you may have, it is not that you are a Christian. If you think your thoughts are higher than his thoughts, if you think your ways are higher than his ways, I pray you repent of that and turn to him. You will never be able to love your husband or your wife the way you should until you do. In today's text, we saw two sides of the golden coin that is God's perfect plan for marriage. That in God's perfect plan for marriage, wives voluntarily submit to their husbands. And in God's perfect plan for marriage, husbands love and honor their wives. As long as we seek our best interests, as long as we try and stay in our comfort zone or place boundaries upon boundaries upon boundaries to ensure our safety, we will never be able to fulfill God's plan it is only when we die to ourselves and place our spouse above our needs, only when we seek to honor God rather than ourselves, only when we start to understand and live out God's purpose for marriage, then we will get a taste of what marriage was always intended to be. It's only then that we will get a shadow of what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. In creation, everything was perfect. In new creation, the effects of sin and death are coming unwound so that we can have a taste of that shadow 
If men are dying for their wives and wives are respecting and submitting to their husbands, all will be balanced or as balanced as it can be this side of eternity. It's God's plan. It's his plan. It is so much better than anything we can come up with. Would you pray with me?